with i'll get you to go to your bibles to first corinthians chapter 5 first corinthians chapter 5 as we continue this series on righteous judgment i pray there's been a blessing to you so far and today we are looking at a different topic within that subject first corinthians chapter 5 and we'll read from verses 1 to 5 to commence Paul here is speaking to the Corinthian church, obviously. It is reported commonly that there is fornication among you, and such fornication as is not so much as named among the Gentiles, that one should have his father's wife. And ye are puffed up, and have not rather mourned, that he that hath done this deed might be taken away from among you. For I verily, as absent in the body, but present in the spirit, have judged already, as though I were present concerning him that hath done so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when ye are gathered together and my spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ to deliver such an one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Let's, uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. We'll commit this time to him. Father, we thank you once again for your loving kindness. We just thank you for your precious word that you've preserved for us. We just pray, Lord, that you would open up our understanding this morning, that we might receive the things that you have for us. We pray that you would grant us your grace, Lord, that we might live these words and your wisdom, that we might appreciate them in our lives. We thank you once again for this precious time. We thank you for the work of the Holy Spirit within our hearts. And we pray in all things that our lives would glorify you perfectly. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So I'll just give you a quick recap on last week. So last week we looked at the obligation that every believer has to judge doctrine. Every believer, not just your pastor, because part of the problems that have occurred over the centuries and over millennia is that people have just trusted the person behind the pulpit. And they'll say, oh no, I trust him. So he's okay. And because he knows what he's talking about, he studied the Bible. I don't have to study it. I don't have to check it out for myself. So therefore, whole congregations, whole denominations are now in error and have fallen into error over time. The Bible teaches us that every one of us, if you have the word of God in your hands, you have an obligation to determine what is right and what is wrong. And you also have the spirit of God within you, just as I have. And if we are to judge that a particular doctrine is wrong, then we are to be wary of that doctrine. And we are not only to be wary of ourselves, but if we are to be loving towards others, we are to warn them as well, because any deviation from the word of God produces corruption in people's lives. So we are to be careful, not just for ourselves, but for those around us whom we love, especially within the church. We are called to warn others. We are called to watch out to be watchmen like, like watchmen on a tower who were looking out for the enemy who was coming from a distance and to sound the alarm when things of wrong doctrine or corruption of the word of God begins to enter into the church. In the same manner, we are called to be wary of and to judge false teachers or false prophets as the Bible calls them as well. These are people who carry these heresies with them into the church. And they begin to spread their teachings. We are called to judge them as well for corrupting the truth of God and turning the truth into a lie. And if you consider it, 
This is the problem that mankind has had from the beginning. You see, when God gave Adam the one commandment, thou shalt not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, lest thou die, Adam's job was to take that doctrine and protect it and keep a watch out, especially for his wife, Eve. Did he do that? No. Because when the enemy came and presented a different doctrine and, and corrupted the original one, it says, oh, no, no, you're not really going to die. He knows that when you have that fruit, you're actually going to become gods too. Adam and Eve should have both have been aware that there was something wrong and they should have stuck to the truth. Instead, we are where we are. You see, Lucifer has, from the beginning, sought to corrupt the Word of God. That's why there's an attack on the Word of God. And it has been for thousands of years. If he can get rid of the Word of God, if he can corrupt it, then he can take away the standard we have to determine truth from error. If you remember how the devil tried to tempt Jesus in the wilderness, how did he do it? By corrupting the word of God. Only Jesus knew how to, how to argue with it, how to actually wield it like a sword. And the devil lost every time. So the devil seeks to corrupt through the very thing that God has actually given us as our standard for truth. Has the devil changed his tune? No. The devil has not stopped seeking to corrupt, seeking to destroy, seeking to kill. He has not stopped seeking to introduce new doctrines or to corrupt the right doctrines or good doctrines. Of course, he is a liar because he's a father of it. He does not change. And you may wonder, what about today? What about all the Bibles we have today? Everyone has a Bible in their pocket, on their phone, on their computer. They've got probably multiple Bibles sitting on their shelves. Uh, are we doing a better job today? Are we judging properly today? Well, the answer to that is a big no. Have we learned our lesson from the past failures, even from the beginning? The answer to that is no. In fact, people today, even having the word of God in so many places, they willingly fall into error because the fallen nature has not changed. They like this or they like that. They prefer this teaching over that teaching because it suits them. And ultimately, they deny the one who brought them. They deny the one who gave them the word, the Lord himself. They forget all too often, that the devil doesn't come with the red pajamas, with the horns and the pitchfork and the pointy tail, right? How many times have you seen him come to you like that? No, the Bible says that he comes to you as an angel of light. And he also comes as prophets of light and teachers of light. And if we're foolish enough to think the devil's going to play his hand and show his hand, um, then we underestimate our rival. You see, there is a, a principle. If you'd like to um, destroy a doctrine, you don't do it all at once. You don't give them the opposite of what's there. You give them something slightly different or build something extra into it. 
And so you have the original and this new one that comes out looks, a, looks very close to it. <coughs> so it may fool people. Every counterfeit is made, not made to look the opposite. It's made to look like the original. And this is the problem that we have with false doctrine. The churches are filled with false doctrine. Some have gone so way off course to us who, who know the word of God. It seems like ridiculous that even be there. But that's the end result of denying the word of God and allowing a small deviation to enter into your church. And then after time, it becomes a huge gap between you and God. And so the Bible warns us over and over again that the devil will try to corrupt your church, to divide your church through false doctrine. That's one of the ways. And Romans 16, 17 says, Now I beseech you, brethren. This is not a light calling. This is not just, you know, oh, God, just, you know, like in the next time you, you do this, just, just check this out, okay? No, it's beseeching, pleading. I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned and avoid them. So if you're wondering whether it's right to judge a person who calls himself a Christian who's bringing false doctrine to the church, there's your go-to verse. Mark them. Be aware of them. Like a guy who's on, a, on top of a wall protecting a city, mark them and say, looks like an enemy. That's how, that's how clear we have to be about this thing. The Apostle John says in 1 John 4, 1, Beloved, believe not every spirit. But try the spirits, the spirits that are behind the messages that have come to you, whether they are of God, because only a few false prophets have got into the world. No, because many, many false prophets have gone out into the world. And because many false prophets have gone out into the world, we need to be very, very careful. And so you look at the state of Christendom today. It's so decayed. Because people fail in two things. They fail to know their Bible. They fail to understand it. They fail to be born again in the first place because you can't know your Bible unless you are saved. So they removed the gospel a long time before, which means a person, even though they might have the Bible, they don't know how to use it because their eyes have been opened to his truths. So they removed the gospel. The devil's done a wonderful job there. Then they removed the word of God completely, which gives people the opportunity to get saved if they read it. So they don't judge anymore and they're all almost convinced and they are convinced that it's even wrong to be judging other denominations for teaching heresies I remember growing up at first uh, when i first became a believer i was 19 20 years old and i i heard about this fellow called benny hinn interesting fellow um and i saw some of the stuff that he was doing and it was like oh wow look at that stuff like and I was like a babe. I didn't know what was right and what was wrong. I was still learning. But I remember he, he, he raised this particular thing. I saw a video of him and he said that those people who are criticizing should not touch the Lord's anointed. Have you ever heard that one before? Thou shalt not touch the Lord's anointed. Later on, I found out that he was twisting the scripture for himself. And that he is probably one of those ones who actually has proven himself to be one of the greatest and most influential false prophets of our age so we are called to judge doctrine whether it's correct or whether it's not and the only foundation we have for that 
is the word of God by the spirit of God dwelling within us. The next thing we are called to judge is sin in the church. Sin. The devil tries to destroy the church a number of different ways. The first one is through bad doctrine, through false doctrine, through false teachings. And the next one is through sin permeating into the church. And that's why I read this particular passage as unsavory as this passage is. That a man should have his father's wife. Unsavory as that is within the church. I thought it's good for us to understand it. There were some serious problems in the Corinthian church. Some serious problems. In fact, most of the first Corinthians is trying to address all these issues that had come up within the church. You see, the church in Corinth, made of Greeks essentially, was formed primarily a mixture of Jews and Greeks, but many Greeks who had come away from paganism and from the sexually promiscuous lives that they had been used to and grown up with. It was normal for them to do these things. In fact, that even included for, their, for the worship of their own gods, like Diana, it included temple prostitution. In other words, sexual intercourse in the actual temple that they were honouring their gods with. They were having drunken idolatry for other, for other gods like Bacchus. So they were used to that sort of stuff. And they'd come away from that and they'd come into the, into the church. They'd gotten saved and they, they entered into the, the Corinthian church. And you think they'd come away with it, but not all of it. Not all of them, maybe. And they imported some of those things and some of those ideas into the church. And the church wasn't careful enough about what was going on, you see, because it was becoming more and more common. And it may also relate to another problem that they were having in those times. You notice that the Apostle Paul devotes a whole chapter to tongues. You might say, why would he devote a whole chapter to tongues and the speaking of tongues and all those types of things? Because in these other religions, in these pagan religions, they were already, they already had ecstatic utterances. They would already have those babblings. And they brought some of those from their temples and from their stuff into the church, thinking that it was the same stuff. And so Paul had to address that sort of stuff in the actual church. But now our topic, particular topic here is fornication. And fornication, if you ever wondered what the definition of that is, it's every sexual activity outside of, of marriage. Okay? Does that make it clear enough? Every including every corruption that you see on the internet, every corruption that's in the world, anything outside of those particular bounds, according to the Lord, is fornication. And now the Apostle's bringing up this, this specific thing because he sees a, a problem in the actual church. He's concerned about this topic of fornication and that it become widespread. And what's interesting is that it says it is reported commonly that there is fornication. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine if people outside, you know, say, oh, we hear commonly at faith that there's fornication. Okay, imagine that. And the Apostle Paul says he, it's common. I'm hearing this often. It's not just like a one-off thing I've heard. I'm hearing this often, that there is fornication in your church. It's terrible. And the Apostle Paul actually realizes something's terribly wrong there. What's even more troubling for him is that 
the type of sins that are being reported back to him, and this one in particular, not even the unbelievers do, but even they find bad. And he brings up this particular one. And he's so shocked by what he's heard. He goes, he's thinking to himself, I better single out this particular one over here because this can't wait. I have to make an example of this one. The sin of fornication with a stepmother. Now, I don't know the, the details of that particular thing, whether the father was still alive, whether he was dead or whatever else it may, may have been. I don't know all the details, but Paul knew it. He felt that the whole church needed rebuking for this one because they were letting it slide. They weren't dealing with it. And he says in verse 2, and ye are puffed up in 1 Corinthians 5 verse 2 and ye are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he hath done that he that hath done this deed might be taken away from among you so he says to them he's given the whole church a rebuke you remember this letter was written to the Corinthians to be read at the front of the church can you imagine that can you imagine this this letter was written specifically for our church about what was going on in our church and, he, and he's, he's having it read and he's saying, and ye are puffed, ye, the whole lot of you, are puffed up. And instead you should have mourned. Why didn't you mourn about this thing, about this sin that's going on in your church? Instead of dealing with it as a flagrant sin, they, they were okay with it. Not a problem. In fact, they were probably having a bit of a joke about it on the side. Have you heard about so-and-so? And he says, you're proud about it. You're arrogant and boastful about it even. You're treating it as a light thing. He says, rather, you should have mourned. So then he continues on and he says, I've already made the judgment here as an apostle. In verse 3, he says, For I verily, as absent in the body, but present in spirit, have judged already, as though I were present, as, as though I was already with you, concerning him that hath done so done this deed in the name of our lord jesus christ when you are gathered together when you have your meeting and my spirit with the power of our lord jesus christ to deliver such an one unto satan for the destruction of the flesh that the spirit may be saved in the day of the lord jesus so paul tells them essentially you know next time you get together you i want you to have a meeting about this particular topic and I'm going to be there as if I'm there with you and you're going to read this letter out and you're going to make this particular determination that you're going to pray that this person is removed from your church, removed from fellowship of your church, from membership of your church, and you want to hand him over to the devil. You might think, why would they hand over him to the devil? Because the devil loves to kill. And the devil, if, if, he, if he's handed across to the devil, the devil will try to kill him. And if he's out from the protection of the church, the devil will try to kill him and will destroy his flesh. And you might say, but pastor, isn't that a bit severe? No. Because ultimately, whose name is blasphemed if this is known in the world? That God's people do such things. It's better for that person to die than it is to keep them. But the purpose is not just to kill. You see, the purpose to hand him over to Satan, 
to remove him from the fellowship of the actual church is that he would repent. That's the goal. The goal is never to kill someone. The goal is to hand him over. Let Satan, let him, let him have his fun with Satan. If that's what he thinks is fine, then let him deal with the one who led him in this path and see how he deals with him. The Apostle Paul knows that this is such a critical thing. If this is known, this is not something done behind closed doors and no one knows about it. The church knows, but they weren't doing anything about it. And so he says in verse 6, your glorying is not good. Know you not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump? What he's saying is that he knows that because this type of sin is already being made light of, this, this terrible sin is being made light of in the church, that that spirit and that sin and those types of sins will eventually permeate throughout the whole church. You know why? Because people don't care. It's fine. It'll eventually infect the whole church unless it's dealt with properly. And so that's why he says your glorying is no good. Know you not that a little leaven, a little bit of leaven, goes through the whole lump of bread. And he says in verse 7, Purge out therefore the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump, as ye are unleavened. For even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. Therefore let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice or wickedness and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So the teaching here is that the church as a body can have a little bit of leaven mixed up in it, like sin, and it tolerates it. It says, I can deal with that. It's not a problem at all. And then the, the yeast or the leaven starts to spread and it begins to grow and it begins to multiply. And before long, the church, the whole dough, the whole loaf is actually corrupted. That's why when you look at and you wonder... We speak this of this thing about membership, okay? And when we baptize people, we bring them, we add them into the church. We the church votes people in. They recognize them as a as a fellow believer joined to this local body, okay? If that wasn't the case, then how do you remove someone from your fellowship? You have to be able to formally recognize you're no longer part of us. You may even still come through those doors. But you can't be making decisions with us. You can't be involved in ministry in this church. Where there is authority within the church, there has to be membership. Without membership, there is no discipline. Because a person is not accountable to the church. They can come and go as they please. Because we're going to look now in more detail that the church itself can vote on these matters. Can make decisions upon these particular matters. Paul says that the believers belonging to a church are joined together as a like a like a, a lump of dough without leaven. And leaven in the Bible is a picture of corruption. It's a picture of sin. Jesus often used the, the illustration of the, the yeast of the Pharisees as something that was bad. And in this particular case, he says, our Christ, our Passover lamb, was without yeast. 
he was perfectly without sin. That's by the same reason we don't have fermented wine and we don't have bread with yeast. It's unleavened bread. And even the wine is unfermented because both of those things require yeast. To ferment wine, you need yeast. And to actually um, leaven bread, you need yeast. That's why we don't have either. Because the, the blood of the Lord and the body of the Lord were perfectly sinless. And were our, the payment for our penalty. So the Apostle Paul says, because our Savior is perfectly sinless, if you know that there's, there's sin within the body, you have to do something about it. You can't just let it go. Because what you're saying is, then it's tolerable for the body of Christ to have sin. It's okay. Actually, Jesus gave us the same sort of picture in Luke 13, 20 and 21. He says, and again, he said, where unto shall I liken the kingdom of God? It is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal to the whole was leavened. You've always, you, have you ever wondered what that meant? Did you mean that, that it, it meant that, that, that the church grew quickly? No. It meant that the kingdom of God gets corrupted very quickly. So the picture here is that sin, sin that is open and unrepented, not because, not, not all the sin that, we're try, that we're, each of us are trying to deal with and struggle with. No, no, this is sin that's just open and out there, but not being dealt with in the church. Unrepentant sin must be dealt with. Otherwise, it spreads and corrupts the entire body. So in verse 9, the apostle then says, I wrote unto you in an epistle not to keep company with fornicators. Yet, not altogether with the fornicators of this world, or with the covetous, or extortioners, or with idolaters. For then must ye needs go out of the world. But now I have written unto you not to keep company if any man that is called a brother be a fornicator or covetous or an idolater or a railer or a drunkard or an extortioner or such and one no not to eat pastor that's a pretty hard isn't it that if a brother he someone who calls himself a brother he's a drunkard i shouldn't be spending time with him i shouldn't be eating with him no what about someone who's an extortioner or a covetous person or a fornicator. But what says don't spend time with them? And Paul is saying here that it's impossible for us to avoid every fornicator, every idolater, every extortioner, every covetous person in the world. You know why? Because the world is filled with them. But the purpose is not that. Right? Because we're meant to be reaching people with the gospel who have these particular problems of sin. No, 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 no. It's it's not that. But we are called to keep the body of Christ pure. We are called not to allow the body of Christ to be seen in the world like the world. That's the, that's the problem. If someone calls himself a Christian and does these things like it's nothing, like they're, they're not a problem, if that person's a fornicator or covetous, an idolater, a railer, a drunkard, extortioner, don't even eat with them, in other words, avoid them. Don't associate with them. This is once again, not saying for people that are struggling with sin. This is saying for people who are doing this thing without a problem in their life and not repenting of it. 
and not realizing it's something that's bad. It means avoiding people who find sin comfortable in their life. Why? Because for this very same reason that they shouldn't be in the church, because they corrupt everyone else as well. If someone in the church has not a problem with fornication, has not a problem with with those types of sins, let's say you had a problem, let's say you were a thief, a thief, and you were happily going around thieving all the time, and everyone in the church knew it. Can you? Can I ask you a question? How would we be as a church if we didn't approach that person and say, "What's going on?" If we just let them go on their merry way, it was all fine. Or we made jokes about it. It would mean that we just don't care about the word of God. It would mean that we didn't care about the laws of God. And we didn't care about that person either. Because how can you allow someone who's in deep in sin, thinking it's okay, to, get to, to keep on going like that? So we are called to keep away from people who openly sin without repenting and it would include in, in, indicate that something was very very wrong if we did and there was something terribly wrong with the corinthian church because they did if they could make light of a situation rather than mourn there was something wrong in that church the danger was that that church was already flippant about sin already tolerated it without it without an issue and they forgot the terrible death that our Saviour had to die to pay for that sin. And, what, and how evil and bad sin is because it's bringing everyone to hell. We do not make light of those types of things. So verse 12 then says, For what have I to do to judge them that are without? Do not ye judge them that are within, but them that are without, God judgeth. Therefore, put away from among yourselves that wicked person. So, once again, he says, our job is not to judge the outside world. God's going to judge the outside world, okay? But our job is to judge inside the actual church. That's our job. We are to judge what's inside the church, not what's outside the church. The good news we have concerning this individual though you might think well okay they've had a church meeting they came together they 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 prayed about it they then made a decision as a church that they were going to remove him from membership they were going to hand him over to satan for the destruction of his flesh that he would die okay that the devil would actually begin to kill him um and the good news is that it looks like he repented so turn to second corinthians with me chapter two 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 5 to 8. Because church discipline and these types of things, as bad as they are and as difficult as they are, are always, always to bring a person back to repentance, to bring a person back to fellowship, never to cast them away. So 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 5, for all intents and purposes, it looks like this particular fellow has repented. And so it says, but if any, in verse 5, but if any have caused grief, he hath not grieved me, but in part that I may not overcharge you all. Sufficient to such a man is this punishment, which was inflicted of many. So that contrary wise, ye ought rather to forgive him, 
and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one should be swallowed up with over much sorrow. Wherefore I beseech you, beseech you that you would confirm your love toward him. That's good news, isn't it? It seems as if that the admonition of Paul and the instruction of Paul led this person to realize that they were doing something terribly, terribly wrong. It may have been acceptable to the Greek, you know, to the to the pagan Greek community. It may have been okay for people in their day. Maybe it's okay even in today's days. I don't know. But it wasn't acceptable to God. And this fellow looks as if he repented. So it's as I've shared, it's not our job to judge the outside world. It's our job to judge within the church. Doctrine first false teachers and sin we are called to judge within the church turn to first peter chapter 4 with me for a moment first peter chapter 4 because the apostle peter puts it in a similar way and um brother wilbur read this passage out for us this morning but i'm just going to read a small portion of it where the apostle peter in first peter chapter 4 verse 15 says but let none of you suffer as a murderer or as a thief, or as an evildoer, or as a, a busybody in other men's matters. Look at that, even a busybody not that be. Eh? Yet if any man suffers a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. For the time is come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what shall the end of them that obey not the gospel of God? And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing as unto a faithful creator. Commit your souls to him in well-doing. Why would I commit my soul to the Lord Jesus Christ and do good? Because he's done good for me. Because he's already saved my soul. Because I recognize the sin that I had and I carried and the sin that I still struggle with day by day is a thing that caused him to suffer and die on a cross. It's a thing that actually has meant the destruction of mankind and the destruction of this world and millions upon millions of people going to hell. It is worse than cancer. Hands up who's happy with cancer if they ever, ever heard they got cancer. It's worse than cancer. Much, much worse. It doesn't kill a person temporally. It doesn't kill a person physically. Sin, it kills them physically and spiritually forever. It is much worse than cancer. So next time you cringe at the word cancer, have a think about sin and how much worse sin is. Because people in this world are riddled with sin and are on their way to death and destruction, but they aren't aware of it. And they don't know the cure. And here we have the cure. We have one called Jesus Christ, who is the cure for sin. Who is the cure for the result of sin. And he even is the cure and gives you the power over sin. He is the cure. So next time you're wondering why we share the gospel, it's the very same reason that if you had the cure for cancer, and your next door neighbor was dying of cancer, why you would share it with them. So we are to commit our souls to him in well-doing because he saved us. And the world is going to hell. 
and we have a job to do. We are not called to judge the outside world. We are called to help rescue the outside world. But we are called to judge what's in here, what's in the actual church. But if you go back to verse 1 of 1 Peter 4, First Peter 4 1. For as much then as Christ has suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. For he that has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lusts of men, but to the will of God. For the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles. When we walked in lasciviousness, lusts, excess of wine, revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries, wherein they think it strange that you run not with them to the same excess of riot, speaking evil of you. The world should think that we're strange. It should. Because these things still take place today. The world has not changed. But we have. And when the world looks at us, it should see something strange about us when we don't engage in the same things that they engage in. If someone tells you a crude joke at your workplace, please don't laugh along. If they invite you to go and have drinks, they're getting drunk, please don't partake. Be different. Be strange. Show them that you are a different person to what you were before you were saved. Show them what it means to be a follower of Christ. Don't blaspheme and don't cause other people to blaspheme his name. Because they will use you as an excuse not to believe in him. And that is the worst thing that you could imagine. Imagine being used as the excuse for someone going to hell rather than accepting Christ. Would you like that? No. Be different. Be strange. In fact, they, thought they should think of us as strange because we do not indulge in the same things that they indulge in. Our lives should be vastly different to the people around us, but no place more so than in the church. No place. This is meant to be the standard, the ideal for what godliness is. Okay? Which brings us to the next point, and the final point, which is we don't just judge sin in the church, but we all are also called as a church to judge sins one against another okay which is a similar type of thing judging sins one against another these are the sins concerning members within a church who sin against each other things such as theft from one another extortion or slander corruption or any other matter concerning sin the sorts of things that people bring other people to court for to sort out Ever done a job for someone they didn't pay you? Hopefully that wasn't a brother. Ever pay someone and not get the job you, you got, you, you promised? Hopefully that wasn't a brother. Ever been slandered or someone tried to take advantage of you? Hopefully that wasn't a brother, but those things do occur within the church. We'd be foolish to think that those things don't happen within the church. And that's the other thing that the church is called to judge. 
This is the same thing as judging sin in an individual, but now involves disputes or sins between people. And it involves judging guilt and innocence and also what the penalty may be. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 1. Dare any of you, once again, who's he talking to? The Corinthians here. These guys have got so many problems, honestly. He says, dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unjust and not before the saints? Do you not know that the saints shall judge the world? And if the world shall be judged by you, are ye unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Know ye not that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? So let's just stop there just for a moment. Paul sets here some pretty serious truths that are pretty unique. They're not written all over the place that we are going to judge the world. We are going to judge angels. And he says that, why would you, how dare you take another believer to court from your church and bring to someone who's unsaved? Why don't you get it heard in the church? If the church is going to be eventually in a position where it's going to judge, why aren't you judging properly now? And he's telling this to their shame because they should know that it's important to judge in these matters. It's remarkable when you think of it. Verse 4 then says, If ye... If then ye have judgments of things pertaining to this life, which means everyday matters, set them to judge who are least esteemed in the church. Put the person who's the, who's the youngest babe in the front. They should be able to judge whether something's right or wrong. I speak to your shame, he says. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you? No, not one that shall be able to judge between his brethren. We should all be good at judging righteously. Every believer is called to be a good judge. Every one of us, even the young babes who now possess the spirit of God within them should be able to judge on matters such as this. Believers should not go to court with each other to settle their disputes. The first place and the ultimate place they should be going is to the saints in the church. We, sh we should be so good at judging. And according to God's word and through the spirit of God, we should have that ability. Even the people who are least esteemed in the church. But it would seem that in the Corinthian church, no one was willing to judge. No one was able to judge. And Paul says, that's to your shame that you don't do that. Maybe everyone was afraid to judge. You know, when you judge, you have to get involved in some prickly situations. And sometimes people think to themselves, I don't want to get involved in that. You know what I mean? I just, lest I be, you know, I come out looking like the bad person. But when it comes to these matters, the Bible tells us we are to judge. We are to put ourselves in to those situations. 
even though we may be afraid of the opinion of others. But this shouldn't be the case. Because justice and righteousness should be a normal thing, a natural thing within the church. Not something that should be despised. Justice within the church should be first and foremost because we serve a God who is just. We proclaim that we worship him and we believe in him and we believe he is the perfect judge, the righteous judge. Yet if we don't judge within the church, what are we saying? Oh, let him take care of it later on. We'll just tolerate it here. We'll just let the thing, we'll just let it slide, Lord. That's not right. It shouldn't be the case. It should be a natural thing in the church, including faith here. But Corinth was an altogether different story. Because in verse 6, he then says, But brother goeth to law with brother, and that before unbelievers. Now therefore, there is utterly a fault among you, because you go to law one with another. Why do you not rather take wrong? Why do you not rather suffer yourselves to be frauded? So, so the Apostle Paul says he rebukes the entire church here. He says it's a shameful thing that believers would go to court against other believers in the church rather than actually having their, their case heard in the actual church. Whether it's by the elders, whether it's by deacons, whether it's by anyone really, the way he's, the way he's talking here. And he says, well, if even that doesn't, doesn't happen, it's better for you to be defrauded by your brother. It's better if you take wrong and let it go. Because by bringing a case against another believer in the actual outside world, once again, whose name is being maligned? The Lord's name is being maligned. Because everything we do in this world becomes something that the world can use either against us or for the Lord. Paul is saying it's more important to protect the reputation of the Lord in this world than your own pocket. It's better to take wrong and let it go rather than bring it to court. Because his reputation is more important than anyone else's. And so in verse 8 he says, Nay, you do wrong. You do wrong and defraud and that your brethren. So once again, he not only rebukes the ones who are bringing people to court, he's rebuking the ones who actually do the defrauding as well. He says, not only, not only do you not do these things, you actually do the defrauding as well. And Paul then reminds the Corinthians that people who do such things do not inherit the kingdom of God. And that they're in danger of not even being saved in the first place. That they were reprobates. And in verse 9 he says, Know you not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. He warns them of that. How can you do these things openly within the church? He concludes that the church contains way too much sin and carnality. There were probably plenty of people in that church who were not saved at all, but who have been joined in as if everything was fine. But he says the church is not the place to let this sort of stuff go. That sin has to be judged within the church. And Jesus described in more detail even this particular thing 
Go back to Matthew 18, verse 15. You should all be familiar with a particular passage of how to deal with a brother who has sinned against you or trespassed against you. Because it ultimately leads to the same place. That if it gets to the church, the church has the final decision on this matter. Matthew 18, verse 15. The Lord says, Moreover, if thy brethren shall bribe, sorry, thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. And if he shall hear thee, that was gain thy brother. Praise God. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. I will just stop there. So there's your first point of call. If a brother has defrauded you or done something wrong against you, some sin against you, um, go to your brother or your sister alone, have a nice chat with them, explain what the situation is, and if you can and if your brother says, Oh sorry, I either didn't realise it or I made I made an error, I've sinned against you, I'm sorry, please forgive me, you've gained your brother or your sister back. Praise God. If that doesn't work, then bring someone else who maybe knows about the situation and, hear, and can hear the matter just between you three or four. And if that doesn't work, the next point is to bring it to the church. Because in verse 17, it says, And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. So what's the church doing about it? The church, once again, is called to make a judgment call on this thing. They are called to be to be brought before the church so the church can decide as a church body what's going on. Let's resolve this issue. He says, But if ye neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as an heathen man and a publican. So if he refuses to hear the church, he refuses to hear his brother or sister, refuses to hear a witness and two, refuses to hear the church, refuses to be to come under the the actual um, decision-making or the judgment of the church, then Jesus says, treat them like someone who's unsaved. Which means, no longer part of your church. That's a serious stuff, isn't it? That's some serious stuff. But imagine the situation where you've gone through those particular things and then you've brought it up in the church and you end up having a church meeting about this thing and the church says, no, no, brother, you're wrong. You've sinned against him. And he says, no. I don't ref I'll refuse to accept it. At that particular point, the church is called to remove them from their fellowship. They're no longer part of the church. They are seen as an unrepentant sinner in need of salvation. So the church is called to judge in these matters. Judgment that is righteous, that is just, that is correct, that is very careful and deliberate. Not like a mob rule, but is done very carefully and prayerfully, led by the Spirit of God. And just like if you remember the Apostle Paul in, in the Corinth when he was talking to the Corinthians, he, he said, Remove him from your fellowship, hand him over to Satan for that particular thing. It's a similar type of thing, although not to that particular extreme. Okay? You're removed from the church. But this last point, which I'm giving you, is the one that, that we need to take very, very careful or pay very careful attention of. Verse 18. 
because it tells you about the authority of the church to make decisions in matters like this. So Jesus, so Jesus says in Matthew 18, 18, Verily I say unto you, whatsoever ye, now ye means the group of you, all of you, okay? Not just one person, not the pastor of the church. This is the church as a whole that votes. Verily I say unto you, whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Um, you might want to digest that one for a while. It's something to consider. That if the church makes a decision, a prayerful decision about a matter, then whatever goes with that decision is bound in heaven as well as on the earth. As a church... We are called to judge sin within the church. We are also called to judge in matters of personal trespass and sin against one another. When the church judges as a body in matters of sin, the Lord recognises that judgment. This is not some top-down approach. This is the church as a body. Okay? This is not the pastor of the church making decisions from the front and making judgments about people from the front. This is not that. This is where the church gets together and makes decisions and judgments. The Lord recognises that judgment. This means that the church has a great deal of authority bestowed upon it as a body. And if you are part of that body, that means you have an amazing amount of responsibility. Think of that for the moment. If you are part of this church, you have great responsibility to the Lord in this church to judge righteously. When it comes to sin, to judge yourself first of all, to see whether you are living in sin and to repent of that. But second of all, to judge sin within the church and be mindful that sin corrupts. And we should all be careful one for another. One day, and I don't know how, to be honest with you, we are going to judge the world. I don't know one day, day, but the Bible says we are going to judge angels. I don't know. But wouldn't, like, wouldn't you like to be ready and have had some good practice before you got there? I know we're going to be perfect one day, but the Lord has called us to judge righteously now. It applies to us now. And if you are a child of God, you have been adopted into his family now. And you are his ambassador on this earth now. If you are not a child of God this morning, or if you don't know if you're saved this morning, then the Bible says that you are under the judgment of God. And you will have to pay for the, the penalty of your own sins one day when you stand before him and are judged. Unless you put your hope and trust in the one who paid for your sins on that cross. I beseech you, if you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, do not leave these doors because you don't know if you have another day. Make it right with God. If you are in sin this morning, if you are a believer and you've allowed sin to enter into your life in a way that is causing the Lord's name may be to be. 
judge yourself and repent and walk with the Lord perfectly. We are called for that in this world and we are called to work together to help one another walk like that. God bless you. Thank you.